So last week, Pastor Chad shared with us um, how Abraham's faith led to a life that was all in. And the roots of the nation of Israel and even the church lead all the way back to Abraham. An important relationship that Abraham also had was one with his nephew, Lot. Lot actually went with Abraham and Sarah when they left Haran and then went to Canaan. And later we find in Genesis 13 that Lot actually settled in a city called Sodom. Now, Sodom is a city that isn't known for its beauty or for its gates or its towers or its kings, but Sodom is actually better known for its end. In Genesis 19, we see how two angels visited the city Sodom. Uh, They went and hung out with Lot. Then the men of Sodom banged on the door and they wanted to kind of, uh, you know, assault them, wanted to have sex with them. And so the angels fled the city, took Lot and his family with him before God destroyed the city. So normally people look at that text and say, well, Sodom was destroyed because of the sin of homosexuality. Specifically, they will say Sodom was destroyed because the men of Sodom wanted to have sex with the Uh, with the visitors, uh, Lot's guests. But what we find is that prior to Genesis 19, in Genesis 13, the men of Sodom were already known for being wicked, for being great sinners. And actually also in Genesis 18, the, the chapter right before, we see God telling Abraham that the outcry of, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Also, what we find later in the Old Testament We see in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, the prophet said, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. Although the prophet Ezekiel referred to Sodom's sin of homosexuality and called it an abomination, which is the very word, the exact word that we find Leviticus that referred to homosexuality. It was certainly, and get this, it was certainly not the only sin of Sodom. Sodom actually was guilty of many sins, a plethora of sins. But whenever we see God's judgment, we have to also see God's mercy. Actually, I don't even think we can understand God's judgment apart from God's mercy. In Genesis 19, God, in his mercy, actively pursued and saved Lot and his family. Just like how God actively pursued and saved me and my family. This morning, my parents and I want to share with you about our journey, our journey of faith our journey of redemption. And it touches on things like homosexuality, a broken marriage, pride, selfishness, but ultimately it's a story about how God drew us to himself and redeemed our whole family. America, where money grows on trees (laughs) and streets are lined with gold. Well, that's what I perceived when I first passed through Ellis Island of New York City on October 30th, 1964. 
I quickly realized how wrong I was. The first night I stayed at my friend's rundown apartment in the slum of Harlem. And even more surprising was the day after, October 31st, when little people were massacring doorbells and said, trick or treat. I said to myself, what have I got myself into? Angela, my college sweetheart, came a few months later, and we married the next year. I also assumed just because we were in love, we would simply live happily ever after. How naive I was. We were not Christian then, and after years of unresolved issues and self-centered living, our marriage was a disaster. So with the encouragement from both of our sons, we began the paperwork for a divorce after 28 years of marriage. In the same year, on May 15, 1993, our son Christopher came home after his first year at the University of Louisville School of Dentistry. He made an announcement. I am gay. Since our marriage relationship was hopeless, I did not work as a team with my wife to face this enormous challenge. Not only did I not comfort her, but I accused her for making our son gay. And uh, Christopher's declaration affirmed my belief that we should all go our separate ways. Let him be, because there's nothing I can do about it. Besides, isn't it more important to be happy? But my wife respond quite differently. You will never think that three simple words, I am gay, could cause so much pain. I actually thought I could threaten Christopher with the automaton to choose the family or choose homosexuality. But Christopher already bought into the lie that he couldn't change, that he was born gay. So he said, if you cannot accept me, I have no other choice but to leave. Without any hesitation, Christopher picked up his bags and left. Nothing can describe how I felt at that moment. It was worse than receiving news of Christopher's death. He could have cut me with a knife, and it would have hurt less. In my mind, Christopher, who was closest to me and my last ray of hope, had also betrayed me. I was at the end of my rope as my world fell apart around me. I had no more reason to live. So I determined to do the unthinkable. I was going to end my life. Even though I was not a Christian at that time, I felt the need to meet with the minister who gave me a pamphlet on homosexuality. Then I bought a one-way Amtrak ticket to Louisville, planning to say, to say goodbye to Christopher for the last time before ending it all. With only my purse and the pamphlet from the minister, I bought on the train to Louisville thinking that death was the only answer 
to all my problems. Never being much of a reader. On the train, I began to read a pamphlet, which explained the plan of salvation, that all of us are sinners, yet God loves us in spite of our sin. God opened the eyes of my heart. Then I realized that just as God loves me, I could love Christopher in spite of him living as a gay man. After arriving in Louisville, I caught a number from the back of the pamphlet and was connected to a Christian lady in Louisville who began to disciple me. For six weeks, I immersed myself into the Bible and felt as if I couldn't soak up enough. You see, I went to Louisville expecting to end my life. In reality, I did. One of my favorite verses today is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. After six weeks, I got a phone call from the lady who was discipling Angela. She was very excited, told me that uh, your wife has surrendered her life to Jesus Christ. She has been saved. I was not very pleased. And I told her, this is not a good news. This is my worst nightmare. Because from now on, she has got on her side. But what I realized that her transformation was not a Sunday-only change, but affected every aspect of her life. What she had was not religion, but an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Little did I know that God was also work on me, so I started going to church with her. And a friend of ours invited us to a Bible study called the BSF where we grow deeper into the understanding of and the love for God and his word. Uh, by st studying the Bible, that we finally, I finally also give my life to Jesus Christ. God became the glue that kept our marriage together by, as a one flesh by joining both of us to himself. This was God's way of preparing my wife and I for the difficult years as our son Christopher headed deeper and deeper into the world of homosexuality. From my childhood years, I did what most Chinese American kids did. I can distill that to three things. First of all, you must obey your parents. Second, do well in school. Bring home those A's, no B's or else no rice for you. Also, third, very important, you must practice piano. <laughs> See, I never fit in with the other American boys. I mean, I looked different, acted different. I had different interests. And God gave me the gifts of music, of sensitivity. And Satan can't take away those God-given gifts, but he can twist the perception of them. And from a young age, I was viewed and ridiculed as being effeminate. The first time I remember having attractions to the same sex was when I was nine years old after I came across pornography at a friend's house at nine. 
At that young age, I was confused and afraid of those feelings. And actually, that's not a young age anymore in, in our internet age. So I was confused and afraid of those feelings without any parental guidance on sexuality because oftentimes pe parents think, oh, nine is too early to talk about sex. Not in this age. So without any parental guidance on sexuality, those magazines gave me a distorted view of sex and they soon became my master. So with pornography fueling my attractions, I had my first sexual encounter when I was 16 years old, but I kept my feelings hidden through high school, college, even the Marine Corps reserves. In my early 20s, I started secretly going out to the gay clubs. Then when I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, I no longer kept it a secret, and I came out of the closet. Spending most of my free time in the gay clubs, I went from relationship to relationship, seeking intimacy and happiness, which I found temporarily, but it only left me feeling unfulfilled and unsatisfied. So I began experimenting with drugs. But without much money as a dental student, I supported my habit by selling drugs. And I sold to friends, classmates, and even a professor. See, I actually thought that I could live this double life of being a graduate student by day and a promiscuous drug dealer by night. But three months before I was to receive my doctorate, the administration expelled me. So my parents flew down from Chicago to Louisville, Kentucky. And I thought they were going to fight to keep me in school. My dad's a dentist. He knew the dean really well. All he needed to do was to threaten a lawsuit, and I'd stay in school. And besides, isn't what any Chinese parent should do? Well, to my surprise, as we sat there in the dean's office, my mother looked at the dean and said, it's not important that Christopher becomes a dentist. What's more important is that Christopher becomes a Christ follower. And they said that they're going to support whatever decision the school made. Well, let me just tell you, I was not happy about that decision. They weren't on my side, they were on the school side. So I moved further away from them, further away from Chicago to the bright lights in big city of Atlanta, Georgia. And there I quickly took over the drug scene in the gay community and I became a supplier to other dealers in over a dozen states. In addition, it was nothing for me to have multiple anonymous sexual encounters each and every day. Because according to the world, I had it all. Money, fame, drugs, and sex. I had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And I began worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. Because in my world... I had become God. And I had no idea that Christopher was doing drugs. But we knew his biggest need was to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. So I sent him Christian cards several times a week. And I filled them with encouraging words, scripture, and hymns. At the bottom of each card, I sign, love you forever, mom. But little did I know, he never read them. He simply tossed them into the trash. Angela and I knew the only way to see our son if we flew to Atlanta, so we did. But on the second day, he kicked us out, not even allow us to call our friend to pick us up. Before leaving, I offered Christopher, I want to give him some gift that was my very first Bible. Not surprisingly, he refused. But I left on his counter anyway and walked out the door. 
we found out later, as soon as we walked out the door, he took my Bible and threw into the trash. It was more than obvious that he was totally unreachable and completely hopeless. But my wife and I committed not to focus on the hopelessness, but on the promises of God. Along with over a hundred prayer warriors from our church and from the Bible Study Fellowship Group, we cry out to God for Christopher. In her desperation, my wife um, started to uh, pray a very bold prayer. Lord, do whatever it takes to bring this prodigal son to you. In her desperation, Angela fasted every Monday for eight years. Once even fasted 39 days for Christopher. She would literally spend each morning in her prayer closet, reading her Bible, interceding for Christopher, and praying for herself and for me. She wrote down many of her prayers. The following is one of those prayers. I will stand in the gap for Christopher. I will stand until the victory is won, until Christopher's heart changes. I will stand in the gap every day, and there I will fervently pray. And Lord, just one favor. Don't let me waver. If things get quite rough, which they may, I will never give up on that son, nor will you. Though the enemy seeks to destroy, I will not quit as I intercede, though it may take years. I give you my fears and tears as I trust every moment I plead. I prayed those prayers for eight years, and it seemed that God was not answering them. But during those years, God did answer my prayers, just not in the way I expected. His answer for me was, wait, be still, and know that I am God. Looking back upon those years when I prayed for change, God did bring change. The change was not yet in Christopher, but the change was in me and my husband. What God intended for that time was that we would be changed, that we would be transformed, that we would be trophies of God's mercy. Oswald Chambers said, we are not here to prove God answers prayer. We are here to be living monuments of God's grace. As we live out those years of waiting, we learn to walk and live as monuments of his grace as God drew us to himself each and every day. Often, answer to prayer doesn't come quickly, and this definitely was not an exception. But my parents were unwavering in their faithfulness to intercede on my behalf. Like the persistent widow, my mother bombarded heaven with her prayers. She knew that it would take nothing short of a miracle 
to bring this prodigal son to the father. And a miracle is exactly what God did. This miracle came one day with a bang on my door. I opened up my door and on my front doorstep were 12 federal drug enforcement agents, Atlanta police, and two big German shepherd dogs. I just received a large shipment of drugs, not my largest, but they confiscated all my money and my drugs, and I was charged with the street value equivalent of 9.1 tons of marijuana. With that amount, I was facing 10 years to life in federal prison. I'd started with a bright future among society's finest in academia, and I found myself in the ditch among society's despised in the Atlantic City Detention Center. So I tried calling all my friends. You know, those type of friends that say, whenever you need something, just give me a call. Those friends that actually get me more into trouble than they were any good for me. Well, what I didn't realize was I had a praying mama at home. Watch out. <laughs> and she knew as long as I had those type of friends around, I would find no need for God and no need for my parents. And remember, she loves bold prayers. Well, she prayed specifically years before that that somehow, some way, God would cause all of my friends to desert me. And on that day, not one friend received my collect call. So you mothers, beware of your prayers. They're going to come true. <laughs> so I was down to the bottom of the list, home. And I didn't want to make that phone call. As I imagined the earful that I was going to get on the other line. But my mother's first words were, son, are you okay? No condemnation, no berating words, just words of unconditional love and grace. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2 verse 4 that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger, it's not God's wrath, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And even on that miserable day, God was pouring out his grace and drawing me to himself through the words of my mother. Actually, my mom was excited to get that phone call, if you could believe it or not, because I hadn't called home in years, and she knew without a doubt that this was God's answer to her prayers. So as she hung up that phone, fighting back the tears, she knew she had to do just as that good old hymn says, count your blessings, name them one by one. No matter what storm she was going through, no matter what heartache she was enduring, she had to count her blessings. So she set the phone down and she reached out for a little piece of animation tape paper. and She wrote down these first blessings. Christopher is in a safe place compared to before. And he called home for the very first time. As my years in prison passed, she kept adding to this list of blessings and taking more pieces of animation tape to it. And today this list of blessings is longer and taller than she is, both sides. Three days later, I was walking around the cell block and actually really trying to say to myself, I wouldn't want to mingle too much with those other people, those really bad people, those criminals, because of course I didn't think I was a criminal. 
and I pass by this garbage can. And you might not know this, but they don't take the trash out every day in jail. So the garbage was overflowing out of the can. It was a pile of rubbish. And I looked at this pile of garbage, and I thought, my life right now is so much like this garbage. I'm from upper middle class suburb of Chicago. My father has two doctorates. I was three months away from receiving my own doctorate. I had it made. But now I found myself among common criminals. Trash. And with my head down, I was about to pass by that garbage can, but something on top of the trash caught my eye. I bent over, picked it up, and it was a Gideon's New Testament. I took that New Testament back to my cell, and I opened up that good book for the first time I read through the entire Gospel of Mark that night. But let me tell you, I didn't think that this was the answer to my problems. Actually, I thought, I've got an enormous amount of time on my hands, and I better pass it somehow. But as many... Many of you know what we have in our Bibles is not just ink on paper. But what we have in our Bibles, beloved, is the very breath of God. And it is living and powerful and sharper than any double-edged sword, able to cut through the hardest of hearts, exposing my sin, my rebellion, and it wasn't a pretty sight. And and I thought things couldn't get any worse. I was wrong. A couple of weeks later, I was called into the nurse's office. They handcuffed me, chained my hands around my waist, shackled my feet together. I shuffled into the nurse's office. She shut the door behind me, sat me down. And I knew something wasn't right. She was uncomfortably struggling with the words, and she couldn't even give me eye contact. So she resigned to writing something on a piece of paper and slowly slid it across the desk to me. I looked down at this piece of paper and I saw three letters and a symbol. It read HIV positive. A few days before Christmas, I received Christopher's phone call from jail. The noise in the background could not cover up his sad and hopeless words. Mom, I am HIV positive. His sullen and weak voice trailed off as my body went limp. I felt dizzy, and the world around me seemed to stop. Ever since Christopher told us he was gay, I had lived with this constant fear that Christopher might one day contract this deadly virus. My worst nightmare was now a reality. Christopher was sentenced to six years in federal prison, but news of his HIV status was like a death sentence, a verdict I could not accept. Hang up the phone. The pains of grief torn in my broken heart like a knife. Aimlessly, I stumbled up the steps and dragged my heavy body into my prayer closet. Under the cross, I fell to my knees as stinging tears blurred my eyes. 
this affliction was more than I could bear. In the silence of my sorrow, a melody began to play in my heart, the soft and sweet stream of a hymn fill my ears and repeat over and over. It is well, it is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well my soul let's sing it is well it is well with my soul with my soul it is well it is well with my soul one more time my soul with my soul it is well it is well with my soul you may be seated a few days after receiving that devastating news I was lying in my cell on my bed and I just looked up at the metal bunk above me and there was graffiti profanity gang symbols and someone had written something in the corner and it read if you're bored read Jeremiah 29 11 for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. You see, at the most hopeless point in my life, God was using the words penned by a prophet thousands of years ago to a rebellious nation to tell me that regardless of who I was and what I had done in the past, he still, he still had a plan for me. I had no idea what his plan was going to take me, but God gave me enough faith, enough strength to get through that one day and the next and the next. My transformation was gradual. I wish I could say I got down to my knees to the sinner's prayer and everything was just perfect after that. That's far from the truth. God was convicting me of my dependencies. The most obvious was drugs. But within a few months, God delivered me from that addiction. But the last thing that I was holding on to was my sexuality. 
So I went to a prison chaplain. I thought, well, I don't know that much about the Bible. I'll ask someone who should know more about the Bible. So I asked the prison chaplain. I shared with him about my past. And he told me, actually, that the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality. And he gave me a book from a shelf. He said, here, this book explains that view. So with much curiosity, I took that book in the hopes of finding biblical justification for homosexuality. I had that book in one hand and the Bible in the other. And from a purely human perspective, I had every reason in the world to accept what that book is claiming to justify the way I had been living. But God's indwelling Holy Spirit convicted me that those assertions from that book were a clear distortion of God, His Word, and His unmistakable condemnations against homosexual sex and relationships. I couldn't even finish that book, and I gave it back to the chaplain. So I turned to the Bible alone. And I went through every verse, every chapter, every page of scripture looking for justification. I, you know, I went cover to cover several times. I had time. <laughs> I went cover to cover. I mean, I was looking for any type of positive. I mean, I thought, okay, if we don't know what those six passages say, whether they condemn homosexual sex or not, which by the way, after over a decade of studying the Bible in seminary and Bible college, studying in the Greek and in the Hebrew, there's no question, but let's just say for argument's sake, there was question. So let's then set those aside, those six passages, and look, look at the rest of the Bible. See if there's any blessing of monogamous gay relationships. I couldn't find any. So I was at a turning point. And a decision had to be made. Either abandon God and his word and pursue gay relationships by allowing my feelings to dictate who I was and how I lived. Or abandon pursuing gay relationships by liberating myself from my sexuality and live as a follower of Jesus Christ. My decision was clear and obvious. I chose God. As the days and the weeks and the months of abstinence passed, I realized that my sexuality shouldn't be the core of who I was. See, I told myself before, God loves me unconditionally, but he doesn't want me to change. But now after reading the Bible, I realize that unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. Let me say that again. This is important. Unconditional love is not the same thing as unconditional approval of my behavior. See, my identity shouldn't be defined anyways by my sexuality. My identity shouldn't be grounded in my sexual attractions. My identity is not gay, homosexual, or even, get this, or even heterosexual for that matter, because my identity as a child of the living God must be in Jesus Christ alone. God says, be holy for I am holy. I used to think that to please God, the God of the Bible, I needed to become straight. But even if I became straight, I would still struggle with sin. So I realized that God didn't say, be heterosexual, for I am heterosexual. 
But neither did he say, be homosexual, for I am homosexual. Rather, God said, be holy, for I am holy. So the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. But the opposite of homosexuality is holiness. As a matter of fact, the opposite of anything is holiness. So God was telling me, don't focus upon your sexuality. Don't focus upon your feelings, your temptations, or your orientation, but focus upon living a life of holiness and living a life of purity. Because change is not the absence of struggles. When does God ever promise us that we won't be tempted with sin? Never. But change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. I'll say this again, change is not the absence of struggles, but change is the freedom to choose holiness in the midst of our struggles. Because the ultimate issue is not what I'm struggling with. It's not my temptations, my desires, and certainly it's not my sexuality. But the ultimate issue is that I yearn after God in total surrender and complete obedience. As I began to live this life of surrender and obedience, God began to reveal his plan for my life, and he called me to full-time ministry while I was in prison, of all places. And I realized that it didn't matter where I was, whether in prison or out of prison, because my calling on life would remain the same regardless of the location. And with that change of heart, God did another miracle, and he shortened my sentence from six years to three years, which is almost unheard of in the federal system. So with only about a year left of my prison sentence, I knew if I was going to continue on in ministry after prison, I'd better learn more about the Bible than just prison religion. So I called home, collect my parents, told them, I think I want to go to Bible college after prison. I think God's calling me to ministry. Can you mail me an application at that time to the only Bible college that I, that I had ever heard of, which happens to be in our hometown, Chicago, called Moody Bible Institute. But then there was silence on the other line because I think they both dropped their phones. <laughs> they mailed the application to, be to prison. I was so excited when I got it. I ripped it open, began filling out the questions, writing my essays, until I got to the end of the application where they asked me for references. Not just from anybody, but specifically people who knew me as a Christian for at least one year. Do the math. The only people I knew were people in prison, so I had some slim pickings. <laughs> but I was able to persuade a prison chaplain, a prison guard, another prison inmate to write my references to Moody. So the greatest miracles of soul story is that they actually accepted me. I was released from prison in July of 2001, started the very next month in August of 2001. So imagine the surprise of my classmates when I answered their question, what did you do this summer? <laughs> I graduated from Moody in 2005, went on to my Master's of Arts in Biblical Exegesis from Wheaton College Graduate School, just received my Doctorate of Ministry this year at Bethel Seminary in St. Paul. Praise God. Big miracle. All, all glory to him. And then um, this year, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, in 2011, um, I had the honor of co-authoring a book with my mother called Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. She wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter three, chapter four. So actually she wrote all the odd chapters, I wrote all the even chapters, they're interwoven chapters with alternating narratives. We were intentional because we wanted to write it from both of our perspectives because we had two 
different stories, two different perspectives of the same situation, two different perspectives. We were headed totally in the opposite direction, and God in his mercy and grace brought us back together. Our book has now been translated into German, Chinese, Slavic, work on Spanish, and just God has used this resource. We have in each book a free study guide that you guys can use in your small groups to just address this issue, not just of homosexuality, because that's not really the issue. It's about our need for Jesus. And then God has really restored our years, given us back the years that the locusts have taken away. Isn't that just amazing how God does that? So now, my parents and I, we travel around the nation, around the world, and next month we're going to Australia, so we'll be on five different continents talking about God's grace and God's truth on the issue of faith and sexuality as a two-generational ministry. How amazing is that? As a two-generational ministry, and then as if that wasn't enough. I mean, that could just be enough right there, but God abundantly gives, and now, how many of you guys know that God has a sense of humor? You guys know that? God has an amazing sense of humor, and so now he has brought me full circle back to Moody, where I'm now teaching in the Bible department. So I went from prisoner to professor. How about that for a resume? But God has done far more abundantly beyond all that we have asked or thought. As I look back upon my life, as we conclude here, you know, my life was far apart from Christ, far apart from Christ. And I made some bad decisions that have resulted in some big consequences. One of those being HIV positive. But you know, I'm no different than any of you. All of our days are numbered. And it took getting HIV for me to realize a profound truth. That as a child of God, I must live with a sense of urgency. You know this day that we live in? Just turn on the radio. Look on television. Read the newspaper. This world that we live in today with threat of war. I mean, look at the Middle East. Terrorism, orphans, widows, disease economy's crashing. As I look at the world today, I am fully convinced that this world doesn't need another good Christian. A good Christian that might come to church every Sunday, keep the pews nice and warm, and they're good people in the eyes of man. Good people. But in the eyes of God, doing little for the kingdom of heaven. This world that we are in today for such a time as this does not need another good Christian. But what this world needs, what this world demands are great Christians. Christians who won't settle for mediocrity. Christians who don't care what the person on the left says or the person on the right says. Christians who know that they've been crucified with Christ and they no longer live, but Christ lives in them. Christians who know that today might be their last. Jesus Christ might be coming back at any moment. Are we ready? In one month, the gay games are coming. And it's not just the event that we want to talk about, 
but it's how do we minister and live in this context, as Pastor Chad says. I would encourage you, first, let's pray. Let's pray as a body of Christ. Commit to one time a week, at least, to pray for those that will be coming, that God will shower his blessings, his grace and truth on those that are coming who don't know Christ, that they would know the living God. Second, go to CVC online and download the talks from yesterday that I had talked about how do we share Christ to the gay community. We must live with a sense of urgency. Do you know that God has created us for greatness? Not in the eyes of man to say, oh, look at how great I am. How prideful, you know, that's, that's God's, that's man's ways. But great in the eyes of God, which means being the least of these. Being a servant. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so should we. Because I don't know how many days, how many years the good Lord will give me. But I've prayed for one thing. And that is in my life. I might be able to see with my eyes this generation, young and old, 9 to 99, rise up and take their place in this world and turn it upside down for the sake of Jesus Christ. Because whether you're ready or not, all of us will one day stand before our God, our Creator. And my hope is that He will say, well done faithful servant. Let's pray. God of wonders, of everything that was, is, and will be, we worship you. Not because we have to. Not because out of obligation. But because you are worthy and that's all that we can do out of the gratefulness for what you've done in us. Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, that you have given us a new song to sing. Thank you for life. Help us to make good use of the life that you've given to us, oh God. And God, we repent we repent of settling for mediocrity. Lord, we repent of thinking that we are better than others. Lord, we repent that we think that our sin is not as bad as others, or as bad as homosexuality, or as bad as any other sin for someone else. Lord, we repent. Might our heart break for those things that break yours, oh God. Lord, we want to see your glory come. Come. Come today. Fill us. Come fill this city, this state, this country. Lord, we praise you, we love you, and we ask this in the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus, the Messiah. And the people of God said, amen. Amen. You guys appreciate the Ewan family?